0: Hello and welcome back to the official SASTA podcast from the main man Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter and from me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC on H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now for the show today, we are doing something slightly different. It's been a while since SASTA annual 2016 and quite frankly, we've been getting some withdrawal symptoms and we thought what better way to get over those symptoms than to relive some of the best elements of the event from last year, 2016 SASTA annual. So this is our brilliant way to relive the event, and also show all of you who've been wondering what Sastra is like to have your inside peek inside the world of Sastra Annual, and then you can join Jason and I in person next year for Sastra Annual 2017 from Hito, and get your tickets at Sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, under Annual on the site. And today we're featuring a conversation between Jason Lemkin and Damesh Shah, co-founder at the one and only HubSpot, where he discusses from day zero with HubSpot to IPO, everything that- that went to plan, and all that did not. So I'm going to hand over now to the main man, Jason Lemkin, and Dom S. Shaw.
1: Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. And I think we're just going to learn a handful of lessons from nothing to IPO and beyond uh, from a friend of all of ours, and, uh, and I'll try and tease out anything interesting from
2: the conversation that, that we don't get to. Thanks for having me, Jason. This is awesome. Uh, my favorite audience, uh, other than my own conference, of course, but... Um... My favorite audience ever. Um, we're going to mix it up a little bit. I'm gonna, it feels a little bit like being on late night. Essentially, I'm going to go do my skit, then I'm going to sit down, and uh, if I do well enough and Jason invites me back, um, we're going to do that. So I'm going to run through this. Uh, um, I call this Lessons from the Unlikely Story of HubSpot, and I'll explain in terms of why the story was unlikely. Um, I'm Darmesh. That's the hashtag, in case you have not figured that out and you like the Twitter thing. Uh, for the video people, by the way, my slides are much better looking than I am, so if you just want to drift the camera up there, that would probably be better. Um, and I'm going to skip by kind of my life story and how I grew up as a small child in India and how the the dusty streets influenced my take on unit economics and SaaS subscription models, Uh, and we're going to fast-forward to uh, HubSpot, which is uh, my claim to undeserved uh, fame. Uh, Most of you, I'm assuming, at least have heard of HubSpot, otherwise we are not doing our jobs being in the marketing space. All right, so my my goal here is hopefully to share something useful um, or maybe a couple things that are useful that will increase your odds of what I think of as like breakthrough success, which is what HubSpot's trying to achieve that we so, and like things we've learned along the way that we think have kind of influenced our uh, trajectory and hopefully increased our odds of of having breakthrough success uh, someday as well. A couple of quick notes of warning. One is this is um, lots of folks that have kind of been through the startup cycle. You have this um, kind of extrapolation from like a single data point problem, which is, okay, we have this story. This is what we did. Wasn't that awesome. You should follow it. um, And it's... uh, it's a myth that unicorns, just because they were successful, that everything they did was smart, and everything they say since having become unicorns is right and true and applicable to all people. is just simply not true. Unicorns uh, don't crap out universally applicable um, advice. So all that aside, um, so going back to when HubSpot kind of first started, um, I met uh, Brian Halligan, who's the founder and CEO of HubSpot. Uh, we met in grad school at MIT. Uh, and there was kind of one problem uh, with Brian, and uh, and the problem is that he was in business school working towards an MBA. Um, Now, some of you may be like, well, why is that a problem? It's like, lots of people get MBAs, and it's because the conventional wisdom in the startup world was and still is. um, I'll I'll explain by way of this uh, formula. So, let's assume the probability of success for a SaaS company is roughly 1%, and that formula is true given some definition of success, right? So, let's Work with me here, it's okay. And that probability is impacted, sometimes negatively and sometimes exponentially, by certain things. One of those things is the number <laughs> of MBAs on the early team. So the math going through my head is like, okay, well, we're just getting started, and here we've got this MBA that's joining a two-person co-founding team. It's so, the holy crap, we've like, just dropped our odds by 50%. And then it occurred to me a few minutes after that thought that actually I was in business school too, thereby taking the odds down another 50%. And so if that weren't enough... You know, we have the founder, CEO, founder, CTO, me, uh, MBA, hire the VP of marketing, MBA, VP of sales, MBA, VP of customer, MBA, (laughs) VP of engineering, MBA. And now the odds of any semblance of survival, let alone success, are like vanishingly small at this point. And by the way, they're all MIT, as it turns out. Uh, A weird little coincidence there, all with a network. And it's like, okay, what could possibly go wrong, right? We've got a bunch of MBAs uh, trying to build a SaaS business here. Um, And the reason I kind of put this out there No knock on MVs, obviously. I have one is that I think one of the mistakes um, we make in SaaS sometimes is because SaaS has the word software" in it and software is "tech, we automatically assume that everything is it's like all about the product. Product, 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 like find a great product. Like designer, get the product right the thing we've learned is that, yes, a great product is essential, but there are so many other things that contribute because it's a large, kind of very complex machine in the SaaS business, and everything impacts it, right? So it's not just about getting the product team right. It's about getting analytical people across the entire organization. So that's... Um, the other thing that dropped our odds of success um, was the fact that we were focused on small business, on the SMB market. And everyone we talked to, literally everyone said, this is a very bad idea. Do not, like, no, and the reason is, like, no one hardly ever has succeeded in building a big business in SMB. It's just, it's like, it's impossible, because here's the deal. You're trying to acquire customers, and it's expensive to reach SMBs, because I don't know why, it just is. Um, And then when you get them, they churn at a higher rate, um, and so it's like, it's like, the math just doesn't work. You can't make the economics work. Um, so, but that's exactly what we did, uh, and we did raise capital along the way, so people, and my guess is that our early investors humored us, and said, yeah, they say SMB now, but event, like, they're not stupid, they're going to figure out that enter- enterprise is the actual way to go, and it'll, it'll be okay, that was, I think, the thought in their head, uh, they underestimated our stupidity, as it turns out, uh, we're now nine and a half years in, and we are still unequivocally, SMB. Working out okay so far, by the way. Another piece of very, very good startup advice that I've given myself a hundred (laughs) times is the do one thing exceptionally well, right? Like narrow in, narrow the focus, and do that one thing better than anybody else, and that increases your odds of success. And we did the exact opposite of that. Um, We were like, we are going to build all the things. All the things a marketer needs in the modern world, we are going to do all of those things. And so one would question is, like, you would ask yourself, like, self, why are we doing this crazy thing of building out, like, you know, we're going to do search tools and a content management system and social media, like, all of it, right, on the top of the funnel. And our, our motivation was very simple, which is when we talked to customers, which I encourage you to do, that's a good idea, um, talk to customers and potential customers, the thing they kept coming back with was their problem was not a dearth of tools. Right? It's not like the, these were great tools by great companies. The issue the SMBs had was, like, well, I'm a 20-person consulting company. I don't know how to take WordPress and hook it up to Google Analytics and then this. I just can't I can't do that. Um, and so that's why we did it. We wanted to solve the problem customers actually had, despite the fact that it was actually crazy uh, and contrary to our own advice to ourselves for many years. Now, one of the byproducts of, um, of this kind of all-in-one strategy is the product tends to suck. Uh, it's because you have very few engineers trying to build out this very wide, 9-inch-wide, 2-inches-deep thing. And HubSpot's product in the early years sucked. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it a 7 if you kind of round up from 6.3. Um, it got better. Um, and, but one of the early decisions we made, which was, I think, very fundamental to, to HubSpot, was that when Brian and I started the business, um, our kind of thesis in our head was, okay, we're building a SaaS company. I've built commercial software products before. Let's stipulate that if we happen to have stumbled into, like, a real market, we will be able to build the software, If we end up going down and crashing burning flames and this doesn't work, it will be not because we couldn't build the application. We weren't inventing new video codecs or driverless cars or anything like that. It was a relatively simple business SaaS app. It was big, but it wasn't particularly hard. And so we said, is like, okay, well, if this doesn't work, which we need to figure out really soon if it's not going to work, it'll be because there's no market. That will be the primary cause of uh, cause of failure, and we'd rather know that now. So then everything was in the early years, we kind of oriented around that thesis, which is, we need to mitigate market risk and not product risk. We'll assume we'll build the product if the market's there. And the only way we kind of knew to test the market, is like, oh, well, market means transactions occur. A transaction is when someone pays someone else money. We're from the East Coast, we're old-fashioned that way, right? It's, um, and so like okay how do we actually establish the fact that people are willing to pay money ask them to pay you money that's like the best possible way to test it so the product even in its sucky form in i'll say generously late alpha we started asking people to pay and one of the challenges with that like one of the requisites in order to start charging money is you have to come up with a price and the time we had to make the pricing decision we don't didn't have the 6 MBAs yet it was just me and Brian in a house plant um, trying to decide because, okay, we, both of us are going to start selling this thing. And um, I'm going to give you the answer here. Uh, and the answer is three minutes. And I'm going to tell you the entirety of the conversation, pretty much, Per Brian, we're going to go start selling this thing. Yep, we're going to start selling this thing. We need a price. Yep, we need a price. What do you think we should charge? I don't know. What do you think we should charge? What do you think about $250? Done. That was the extent of our rigorous analysis on pricing. Um, and the price we came up with was $250 a month. Now, the astute amongst you will recognize that it is not a starting at $250 a month. It was $250 a month. You could have been a Fortune 500 company, which we got some of those in the early days, and we made it physically impossible for you to pay us, a penny more than $250 a month. So we rationalized it. Um, like, oh, well, this is actually good because we're getting this data and we're going to charge monthly. We didn't do any annual contracts. And and it worked because it was so simple, right? Like it's even, like we could say, oh, it's $250 a month. It's month to month. If you hate it, you can quit. You can cancel. That's why the kind of month to month uh, model, we had that for years, by the way. Um, and because one of the things we were looking for is once again, we were looking for evidence or data. We wanted, it's like, okay, number one, can we sell this thing at any price? $250 seems like a reasonable number. Ended up being low, but reasonable number. And... After we sell them, and after, will they stay despite the product sucking? That's what we we're trying to establish, hence the month-to-month. Month. It's like, okay, well, then we can see, like, are people canceling or not? And the funny thing is, the same thing that I think worked for us in the early years almost killed us, because this price stayed that way for some of our early years, right? And for you folks, it's like, well, that's obvious. You guys are idiots. How could you do that? We were idiots. We did that. Um, and so over time, we changed it. We did the basic pro and enterprise. So we went from, no, we'll go from 250 to $500 a month. Awesome. Pro version. Double the revenue, right? Awesome. But not a penny more than 500 right? It's like it's, we were slow. We were slow. Okay. Now, the thing we were selling, we were selling this thing called inbound marketing. And this is not a HubSpot sales pitch, so I'm not going to tell you about inbound marketing. What I am going to tell you is that what we were selling is this kind of new approach to marketing. It was a kind of philosophical transformative change. Uh, which brings me to sales and marketing. There are two kinds of things in the world. One are like simple things that people understand. If you have a tool that's in an existing category, other people already have it. Some of the potential customers already use something else. You can put a website up and a credit card form up, and it's like, oh, I have this tool. It does this thing in this category. You might be using another tool. Ours is better. Try it out for 30 days, and if you like it, pay. And you can get customers without ever having, like, carbon-based life forms interact with each other, right? Like, you can actually do that. Uh, That's possible. As it turns out, on the other end of the spectrum, when what you are selling is almost a religion change that says, oh, by the way, everything you thought you knew about marketing is kind of wrong, and you need to change it and do it the other way, which is what we were pitching, that's what would be called a transformative sale. As it turns out, no number of brilliant blog articles from me or my co-founder were going to be enough to like put up on the web and someone says, like, oh yeah, these guys are right, inbound marketing, that's the way to go. Here's my money. That doesn't happen, right? Because we're asking for this massive change in their mindset, and so that required people. So we built out a marketing and inbound inside sales machine over the, over the years. By the way, if you're wondering why I talk so fast, it's not because there's a beer waiting over there as soon as I, like, make it back to back there. It's because I talk this fast. This is me. me. All right. So, when we started HubSpot, we had this inbound marketing thing. And it's like, okay, well, the category, like, we called it inbound marketing. But there was no category that we neatly fit into. Like, it could have been marketing automation. But this wasn't marketing automation. So, we made this weird, very impactful decision. We didn't know how impactful it was going to be at the time that we made it. It's like, okay, we're going to create an entirely new category. And we're going to create a movement. It's, this is going to be a thing. This should be a thing. And now, you know, years later, millions of dollars later, so we wrote a book, have a blog that gets two million visits, have an event that had 14,000 people last year. It's this big thing, all right? So we have this, all this push that we put behind this new category called inbound marketing. Now, the question I get asked all the time, and even if you don't ask me, I'm going to tell you anyway, should I create my own category? Should I do what HubSpot did? And the answer is, it worked out for us. And even to this day at HubSpot, we still have the debate internally. Was that a good thing to do? Because the odds of actually pulling it off are relatively low. And it's like, okay, well, couldn't we have found something else? Like, I'm on the side of we did a good thing, but there are good counterexamples as to why you might not want to do it. It's super expensive, and it doesn't always work. Um, so it's easy to do. The first filter you should ask yourself before you go off and do something like create your own category is you have to force yourself to say, if we were to pick an existing category, like what's the closest one, and how bad is it? How different are we from the things that already exist? Um, so, and I'm going to give you two secret weapons. I'm going to actually probably just talk about one of them in the interest of time in terms of uh, good things that we did. Um, that worked. So, one of the things we launched is this free tool called Website Grader. Um, I hacked it myself um, in the first six months of HubSpot. Um, I'll give you intense. What it is, is you put your website in, like acmewidgets.com, and it would go do this analysis and give you a score from zero to 100 on how good you were at marketing based on evidence from your website. Was this SEO right? Did you get the tags right? How much traffic were you getting? What's your social media presence? And it gave you a relative score, a percentile score, that says, oh, you get an 87. That means you are better than 87% of the other websites we've graded. Now, what was interesting about that is that basically this was freemium without the downside, right? One of the challenges you have in freemium is like, okay, I'm going to take my solution, which is X, and I carve out a small portion of it and give it away for free. That's the kind of classic freemium model. And then I'm going to sell the premium version. Uh, Lots of startups forget the Mium part, but let's assume you got that right. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to give away a small piece, and then in hopes that they buy the larger thing. One of the big challenges with freemium is like you have to decide what that small piece is, there are issues around, well, do people devalue the big thing because some portion of it's available for free and you get bucketed into something else? What we did is say, okay, well, instead of giving a part of the solution away, why don't we create a tool that surfaces the problem that they have? And that increases the likelihood that they'll buy the full solution. It has worked brilliantly for us. And I think, I don't know if it's universally applicable, but a bunch of you should think about that. It's like, is there some adjacent tool that you can build that helps your customers recognize that they need you? Now, talk about retention. We all know retention is important. I'm going to tell you the mistake uh, we made. And I think most, this generation of SaaS companies is way better than we were, right? There's, you guys are much more thoughtful around the metrics that you track and knowing that churn and retention is important. But here's the mistake. The mistake is you assume by looking at your kind of cancellations, it's like, okay, well, people are not canceling. That means they must be happy with the product. It does not mean that they are happy with the product. It just means for any number of reasons, one of which could be they're happy with the product, but it could be they're too lazy to cancel. They didn't even know you were, they were paying you essentially, which happens, by the way, uh, shockingly. So any number of things. So what you have to do, what we did at HubSpot, um, I'll give you the very short version of it, in the first three-odd years, uh, we built in the first year, is this thing called the Customer Happiness Index. It was a model that we developed internally that looked at all the data available to us, product usage, which sales reps sold it, what day of the week they bought on, which customer service managed, like everything we could possibly have about the customer all in one database, and we did regression analysis. And the idea behind the customer happiness index was for it to be a predictive model that says, knowing everything we know, how likely is this customer to still be a customer next month, right? And in fact, not only did we, and we tweaked the model as you would expect, being a bunch of MIT folks, and we made the model relatively accurate. So we could know. It's like, okay, Mr. Smith, we had a team that does this now. Mr. Smith, I know you, you don't know this, but you're going to cancel in 4.2 months, um, is there anything we can do to kind of help you? By the way, like here, we have, it's all included in the product price anyway. Why don't you use this and this kind of help you with that? Uh, one of the most brilliant things that we did. So the idea here is don't wait until after they cancel to analyze the data. The, a lot of the data you need, you already have. And cancellation is a post-facto kind of indicator of unhappiness. So try to catch it earlier so you can do something about it. How do you find that pre-churn?
1: I don't want to interrupt, yeah, motion, yep. but, it, but that's a profound... So you're really talking about pre-churn right yep. and, one, and that one way is an nps
2: and yep. surveys but any any insights on how you yeah so we've done
1: nps N- really get to this data
2: yeah um so this data basically is so we're big believe so we do nps surveys uh, we haven't had massive amounts of success in terms of finding correlations between nps in the short run right it's like okay yep. well people will say something but then, then the next month they'll cancel the like, a second NPS, yeah right. so yeah. what we like is we like behavioral data we don't ask people what they think we watch what they do yeah. okay like if You know, they they may say they're happy, but you haven't logged into the product in three weeks. You can't be... Like, happy-happy, right? Like, yeah. that's the problem. Or you think you're happy, but you have the sales rep that ha- was notorious for having a higher turn rate than average. There's something not quite right. So we had all these factors that went in. And the early part of uh, the customer happiness index, the model was very complicated. Yeah. Because we threw everything, every piece of data we could find and get our hands readily on behavioral data, demegra- demographic data, all of it in one standard database. And over time, the thing we discovered was it really came down to, like, four things. That were the actual predictors of whether they were canceled or not. And so now we've reduced it down to, like, those are the things. And we'll rerun it probably maybe every year or and so. you can for...
1: find at your scale, because this is what I think is hard, is unhappy, engaged customers. Because it's easy, it's quote easy, and we have all the vendors here where you can track a uh, lack of usage, right? Yep, and that's totally. work, right? Yep, yep. The really hard ones to find are the prisoners. Totally. Yeah, right. Yeah, I right. hate your product, yep. but it's core to my business. Yep. And so you don't see it in usage.
2: And then totally. bam, they move to a competitor in yep. one day. Right. Yep, totally. And so have you been able to find that? Yeah. So we've tweaked some of that out. So the way we do that is, so one of the issues with, uh, and we have, as all, you all should have, like the kind of customer success teams, right? They're, yep. they're onboarding and their job is to make a customer successful and help them use the features of the product. One of the things that does though, it sometimes distorts the data. So when they're using something, well, is, or are they using it because they're, they were intrinsically like, okay, they saw some benefit, or is because we kind of banged on their head until they started doing the thing, right? Like writing a blog article or doing... So you have to somehow separate um, the things, the data that's kind of pure yeah, to some degree versus the thing that was not forced, but like that we kind of tainted the data as a result of our own kind of intrusion with good intent, no doubt. But um, So I'm going to posit three theories. <laughs> Theory number one um, is it's possible, possible, that not all MBAs are going to pre doom your startup to failure. Crazy thought, but could be true. Theory number two, um, that it actually takes more for the breakthrough success, which is the thing we hope to aspire, you all are aspiring to, um, requires something more than just technology. Can't be just features or whatever. You have to have. A philosophy, maybe not on the product or the market, on culture, on distribution. Something has to be different, and you have to have a point of view that you can pitch outside of just features. And even benefits, that's not enough. It's like, oh, this is what's wrong with the world. This is how we see the future. Here's what we're doing about it. Because it's really, really hard to break through the noise um, just selling technology, essentially. As much as being an engineering guy, I would love for that to be the case. I would love to say, oh... I wrote this software, and I put two servers on AWS and put a credit card form up, and the money just kept flowing in, right? It just doesn't turn out that way. Um, and the last one, um, this is a feel-good, my, my expectation, expectation is that over 100 of you will build, like, the $100 million ARR SaaS businesses right now because you guys are getting so much smarter than we were. Like, you will skip a bunch of the mistakes that we made. Uh, and it's a good time.
1: All right. Thanks for adding a little serious levity to the day. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. It, it's good. Um, I don't want to break it up with my typical intense questions. Oh, but, ask me intense but questions. But I do have some. Um, so uh, I wrote this piece in TechCrunch in the 12 months box was in its quiet period, mm-hmm. saying box will get to a billion in revenue before we know it. People yep. made fun of it. Mm-hmm. But as box crossed 150 and 200 and 300, is there any chance they won't get to a billion? I mean, of course, Right. They're gonna get there. They'll make it there, right? So I know you can't talk about forward-looking statements, but I want to tease out a bit. Sure. HubSpot will unquestionably get to a billion in revenue. The question is, how long will it take, right? And we don't have to talk about the quarter, sure. but yep. it would be difficult for HubSpot given an infinite amount of time at whatever we're doing—two hundred and something. I should know the the yep. rough number. It's going to get there, right? Yep. So talking some of the things you teased about—not selling to SMBs, uh, simplistic, sort of medium, low-end pricing. What are the learnings going to a billion, right? And, and why the heck can HubSpot even do a billion dollars, right? Um, because you talked about a hundred, but that's a lot of people, right? Yep. Um, so what are, what have you learned in these contra obvious things that will scale to a billion?
2: Yeah, well, one is, and this is the obvious one that investors know, and um, and we as a startup community know, but I don't know that we know it, yeah. which is a lot is defined by the market you're going after, right? So if yeah. we were going after some vertical trying to sell a $203 a month product that only had 8,000 possible companies to sell into, there is no way the TAM was large enough and you know, the personal market's big enough to do that. So that's one thing. Um, and the other one, I think it comes down to um, what we call at HubSpot, we call like machine building, yeah. Like, okay. So, and the way we think about the machine is that okay, we have this machine. This is the L T D V C A C kind of um, thing. It's like okay, we put a dollar into this machine that we've built. And X number of dollars comes out over a Y period of time. Right? It's yeah. a classic LTV to CAC thing. And so the thing we work on, is like, okay, everything we do has to do one of two things. Either has to shorten the length of time that it's going to take us to get the LTV, whatever it's going to be, um, increase the overall return. So we might, like when we were starting in our formative years, that number was like 2.5 or 3, the LTV to CAC. right? And it's like, okay, well, we're going to keep driving that up. Well, what do we do? It's like, oh, we could work on acquisition costs, which we did. Yeah. That was not the issue. Uh, and that is yeah. usually not the issue for most SaaS companies at this stage. right? The issue usually is like okay, maybe your CAC is twenty percent higher, but the upside on LTV yeah. is where the real leverage is. Right, so the question we ask ourselves is: Here's how much money we make on a per customer basis right now. Here's how long they stay. How do we make both of those numbers go up? Yeah. And we back solve uh, so we have a number in mind in terms of when we're going to get to a billion dollars in revenue. And it's less than eternity. Um, you know, it less. Than eternity. less. Um, yeah. I think we've actually told investors that we're targeting 2020. 2020. Yeah. And what was nice? So looking back,
1: is the is the accelerant that will get you there? Is it just that? And I'm sure there's a lot of the answers to this are there many. Are yes, but is it that SMBs are running more and more of their business on the web, so they need to manage more inbound marketing, and is that bigger than ever, or is Um, is
2: it more subtle or complex than that? It's no. That's a lot of it. So the thing that's happened is um, as HubSpot has grown. Um, You know, the car goes into, like, new gears. There's a time that's like, okay, well, we're doing all this work trying to increase uh, retention rate. And we move it by, like, half a point despite putting the entire company against that one goal, right? Like, ah, it's hard to move. And then something happens, like some nonlinear shift happens. We don't know what causes it. Uh, We had one of those, you know, about a year, year and a half ago where, like, all the numbers start looking better. And I think one of them is that before HubSpot was like, okay, we have to tell you why inbound marketing is like a good thing, right? Not to drop everything else that you're doing, but why this is a good thing. And now it's like they already get that part. It's like, okay, I know I'm going to need to do inbound marketing. Which thing am I going to pick? Am I going to pick HubSpot or one of its competitors, essentially? How am I going to accomplish it? So there's less of the why should I do this and more like how do I get that done? I got it. So it reduces the friction and the acquisition time and all that stuff.
1: So let's tease just, uh, so related to your point about segmentation and SMBs, um, I don't think that when you guys started it or even today, I, I doubt you're dogmatic about anything. Right, you just wanted to build a winner product that you believed in and a great market. We are red-blooded
2: capitalists in the positive sense of the term. We're very analytical, very. So, how did you and and answer
1: the question? Twist the question around any way you want, but how do you resist the temptation to go up market? Um, because I'm sure, do you disclose what your biggest customer is? Who pays uh, yeah. the most?
2: Um, we've disclosed it. I don't happen to know what Rough it is. Rough and tough, right? Yeah. Um, our average is about $800 a month, right? Yeah, that so I know. But easy what's easy. a biggie? What's a biggie? It's not that big. Like, it's maybe 10 much. times that, but not like huge. But that's
1: 100K a year. Yeah. Right? I mean, so there, how do you resist the temptation? Let's go do more 100K a year. Okay. So it's I'll the same, give you it's the f-
2: same unit input, same right? Question. For the output. And I've, uh, I'll give you the short version of my, my answer. The short version is, a bunch of good things happen when you drift up into the enterprise, uh, and it's yeah. very easy. And everybody does it for a reason. There's kind of reverse gravity because it's always easier to kind of move upstream. Reverse gravity. If you reverse gravity, you just get pulled up, right? Yeah. Um, listen to your customers. You get more money. Everything makes sense. But there are downsides to moving to the enterprise. Yeah. One of the biggest of which is the enterprise, because everybody drifts there, is so much more competitive. Yeah, So much like an order of magnitude more competitive. You have Salesforce there, you have Oracle there, you've got Marketo, everybody's up there. Everyone's there. In the SMB space, there are very few people that are crazy enough to do what we did and stay there. Yeah. And so we have roughly unfettered green ocean, blue ocean access to millions of companies that we can just grow, right? That's, and that's worked out well for us. So it's like, if that starts to not become true, it's like, oh, well, from a competitive perspective, it's not that big of a deal. And then we think we could do this, and the, it's not going to complicate the product too much, and we've got this way that we're going to meander through. We're not dogmatically against enterprise. We would like to think we're good entrepreneurs. Um, and it's been nine and a half years, and we don't see any evidence of that changing anytime soon. As to yeah. as, Oh, like, all of a sudden, SMBs are going to decide they don't need to do marketing. But
1: it's interesting well. thinking through that. Um, I don't want to challenge you for HubSpot, but let's think about other companies. Yep. Yep. I I thinking through and I haven't done the done the, the survey or the quant side. I actually think as it gets more enterprise, there's often fewer competitors because the investment in business process change and workflows gets so complicated yep. that who the hell is going to build Salesforce again, That's right? True. There'll be a paradigm change yep. in Salesforce, but no one is going to ever build Salesforce again, yep. right? Yep. No one's going to build these things. So is, is you what's the what's the general learning for founders? Yep. And, and maybe this can be our last question, but we can sure. tease it out. Okay. What happens a lot of founders is you get a pie. Yep. You get small, medium, and large customers. And sometimes large is not large. Yep. But it's segmented by three, and when you see three different categories, yep. how do you know where to invest your time when you have
2: customers in each segment? Yep, so I'll tell you right? what we did, right? So we have, we actually have those three. We have what we think of as like very small business customers, like less than 10 employees, right? Very small. Very small. We have the mid-market, which is our actual focus, and we have uh, larger, like enterprise kind of, we call them enterprise, they're not really, but yes. so the decision we made is like, okay, well, well, we don't want to sell to the enterprise, but that doesn't mean that we won't take that money. Like the, so, the, the reason that we kind of avoid the enterprise is we don't want that distorting the product roadmap. That's, like, number one reason. Yes. But if someone, and we have this all the time now, is, like, X Fortune 500 company bought HubSpot, and we don't make it's but it's a department within X company that behaves Stylo. a lot like a mid-market, and they're making yes. their own independent decision. There's no corporate governance thing that says, oh, we will choose X. Yeah. And they behave just like all of our other customers. They're not asking us for eight levels of security and all these enterprisey features. And that, to us, is just fine. Like, as long as we can maintain the purity around where our focus is. Same thing with the small business it's like very small business customers. Got it. We don't build a product for them. We don't build a sales machinery around them. We don't build marketing around them. But we will take the money. Um,
1: yeah. So you're, in other words, if we looked at your pie chart, I should know this data. I should have said it. But your M category... You're putting all the effort in the M. It's yep. your medium. It yep. could be someone else's small, but it's your yep. medium. Some smalls that that are more sophisticated can take advantage of that, and some silos can. Yep. But M's the largest, yep. so put all the energy behind that wood, put all of it into the part of the pie chart that's the biggest piece. It's really the the zenith. Um, it's of not it, so right? much that
2: the pie chart's the biggest. It's the... All factors in, it's the highest EV accretive to EV over the long term. Like this is the thing we think we can do well. We're most separated accretive or most revenue, like? most accretive. What's most accretive. Still, where do we have the most advantage long term? It's not Strategic. just like will we make the, this quarter or this year. We're not worried. At, like, we're worried, but we're not that worried about a quarter after quarter, year after year. The thing we ask ourselves is: is this more likely to make us the company we want to be someday? Yeah. Right. And is that? And we're what willing to take short can you term. dominate? And yeah. And right, right now, uh, it's it's working so A good far. segment. But, yeah. All right, we can go Thanks for, for another time. hour. But Arvind, thank you very much. This was
1: terrific.
0: So many incredible takeaways there from Dalmesh, and there you have it. That is a tiny little taster of the incredible people and talks that are on display at SASTA, And you can find out more by heading over to saster.com that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you can buy your ticket for next year and see more incredible founders like Darmesh reveal their immense stories. It would also be fantastic to see you on Snapchat. In the meantime, you can follow me on at h Stebbings with two Bs, or you can follow the big man Jason Lemkin at Jason L on Twitter. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you Monday's show with Dave Juan, investor in the likes of Facebook and LinkedIn and many more incredible companies with technology crossover ventures. And we look very forward to seeing you then.